This is Donna Jackson Nakazawa, author of The Angel and the Assassin, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologist Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jake Gulkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Donna Jackson Nakazawa, author of Angel and the Assassin. But before we get to Donna, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking and Interested Brain Hacker. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. They specialize in delicious gluten and dairy-free sweetbreads everyone will love. Skip, they ship all across the country. To Alaska. Even to Alaska. So Love sign it. up for their newsletter now. Receive 15% off your uh, first order. I can tell you, the wife tried it, loves it. Maybe she's got three orders and I don't know. I'm definitely at a negative with this sponsor. But Skip, we're all about gut health, aren't we? Absolutely, Pete. And Donna's going to talk about that, I'll bet, today, if not directly, then indirectly. So you know we are. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Okay. Donna is an award-winning science journalist, author of six books, and an internationally recognized speaker whose work explores the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and human emotion. Her newest book, The Angel and the Assassin, The Tiny Brain Cell That Changed the Course of Medicine, was named one of the best books of 2020 by Wired Magazine. Donna's other books include Childhood Disrupted and The Last Best Cure. She's also the creator and founder of the Trauma Healing Program, Your Healing Narrative, Right to Heal with Neural Re-Narrating, an online narrative writing course for educators, practitioners, and individuals. Her writing has appeared in Wired, the Boston Globe, Stat, the Washington Post, and Health Affairs. She's appeared on the Today Show on NPR and is a regular speaker at universities including the 2020 Harvard Division of Science Library Series, John Hopkins University, and the University of Arizona. Her next book, which will be published in 2022 by Random House, Girls on the Edge, The Pitfalls Promise and New Science of Growing Up Female, looks at today's growing female adolescent mental health crisis, examines how trauma affects the female brain and body in unique, powerful ways and offers new help for helping girls to flourish even in the face of adversity. Donna, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure to be here. I was really happy to see the invite. So looking forward to the conversation. Now, everybody knows Jay Gunkelman, but how how did you two first get introduced? What was the first memory? First memory was that I was speaking with my friend Seaburn Fisher, who you all know and love. Um, I'm assuming if you know her, you love her as I do. And I was telling her, you know, as science journalists do, this is our job. I'm connecting the dots here. And I had already, you know, I've been a journalists at this intersection of neuroscience and immunology and human emotion and psychology for quite some time in reporting on our new understanding of the brain as this very intricate and sensitive immune organ and the way in which that understanding affects 
our view of neurocircuitry, which of course we see shift in mental health disorders, I was trying to connect the dots through the story of this tiny little cell that I was telling. And really the book, The Angel and the Assassin is a narrative about this tiny misunderstood, long ignored cell for 100 years. We didn't really get what it was doing. And of course it plays a central role in neurocircuitry in the connectome of the brain, which of course leads to neurofeedback. So I was talking to Seaburn, I said, okay, I have all the pieces, I'm connecting the dots, but I need to know how are microglia being affected by brain waves in ways that show, how are, how are they directing the activity of brain waves in a way that shows up on brain scans as neural changes in, in neural connectivity? She goes, oh, for that, you got to call Jay Gunkelman. So I think I emailed you or picked up the phone and you couldn't have been more gracious. And indeed, you broke it down for me as I think no one at that time could have or would have. It's a really distinct question. It was very fine grained. And you were that journalistic gold of giving me the answer to the most complex question that I was asking. You should have put him in the book. He is in the book. What? What? You know this. <laughs> could, you, could you read it to us? We'd, uh, yeah. So a page in The Angel and the Assassin, for those who are looking, I'm holding it up. Yeah. 165, Jay Gunkelman, hacking into microglial connections. So exactly how does neurofeedback help to calm down overactive microglia and benefit patients who are suffering? I turned to one of the foremost researchers and experts in QEEG neurofeedback and training, Jay Gunkelman. Gunkelman, past president of the International Society for Neurofeedback and Research, was the first EEG technologist to be certified in 1996 in the quantitative analysis of EEG. And he has evaluated more than half a million brain maps. He helps me to understand the link between neurofeedback and microglia when we talk by phone from his home in California. Gunkelman connects the dots this way. All brain waves, beta, theta, gamma, alpha, are regulated by a slower pulse and a lower frequency that's constantly produced and emitted by the underlying electromagnetic field in the brain known as the direct current or DC field. Outside the body, DC fields are created when you rub two objects together in such a way that electrons build up on one of the surfaces. In everyday life, you can see this when you rub two blankets together in the dark and sparks fly, or if you rub a balloon against your hair and your hair stands on end. We call it static electricity. DC fields also exist in the atmosphere around us, such as during a thunderstorm. In the brain, says Gunkelman, the activity of this direct current field is regulated by the activity of glial cells. The direct current field loosely represents the brain's state of health. Individual brain waves cannot be performing ideally if the direct current, the underlying slow pulse electrical frequency that regulates the brain is not functioning as it should. And the direct current cannot be in good form if microglia are not behaving in a balanced and measured way. 
When microglia are overactive, as we've seen, they create disruptions in synapses and a loss of neurocircuitry. This loss of circuitry can be measured by the brainwave patterns that emanate from the underlying DC field. Using a non-invasive charge such as neurofeedback, which helps regulate the DC field, allows us to influence the overactivity of microglia, explains Gunkelman. And this in turn can help to improve a patient's mood and cognition. Ding, ding, ding. I think that says it pretty well. The Jay Gunkelman. When I say you're a legend, that's why, Jay. See? Well, I'm glad she made some sense out of whatever I babbled on the phone. It's astounding. When I received my copy of the book, which was graciously sent to me after it was published, I flipped to the back and I saw that I was listed. And today I remembered from, I don't know, probably a year ago or so when I got the book, I remember what page it was on even. I have the weirdest memory. I remember odd factoids and I don't even know where I store this stuff but they pop out uh, kind of randomly so I, I was happy to uh, uh, provide um, my odd sense of how things work uh, when you called so well I uh, thank you for that and it helped settle settle my brain because as a journalist you know when you can't scratch that itch you know that lingering question mark and no one can do it for you you know you feel like you're not serving your reader very well you want to serve your reader by tying everything down as as close to what we know as possible so that that was a great conversation and it gave me confidence going forward that we were on to something here when we think about that interface of the immune system with brain waves and neuroconnectivity and synaptic connectivity and mental health. And I think that's really powerful. And I think it's really promising because one of the jobs that we do as, as science journos is, is try to connect those dots because once we do it, it's power, right? It's power for the patient. It's power for them to see how they can get in on their own story a little bit better and maybe begin to make micro changes that will have an effect. If we don't know why it's happening, we really just start throwing old solutions at the same old problems. And we know with mental health, those old solutions aren't working all that well. You're unique from, I think, a lot of our guests, although we've certainly had guests that have written things, but as a science journalist, I'm personally interested in, in just how you do what you do, but also the subject matter in particular is fascinating. How did microglia land in your lap? And then you talked to Jay, obviously, but in your book, you talked to lots of folks. And I think that's what's interesting about how you tell the story is you, you weave between the different folks you talk to, as well as pulling in humans that are experiencing things that are, are real life examples of how this stuff might go awry. How did the microglia come across your radar? And then how'd you find folks that you did, you know, Beth Stevens at, at, at all? Sure. So great question. You know, as a journalist, each book that you see come out is usually the germ of the idea, the very beginning of that idea and that thinking process is probably five years prior for me. And it's usually something that emerged while I was thinking about or delving into a prior book. And I thought, well, that's so interesting. You know, what more do we know? And I'll start a file. So if I'm going to track this back, let's see, in my book, The Last Best Cure, I think I 
I don't, I didn't mention microglia, but I talked a lot. Actually, I think I did. I was already on to the fact that microglia were somehow implicated in neural pruning during puberty and adolescence, but we didn't really understand how or why. And then in childhood disrupted, I, I think I have like a page on microglia, what we thought we knew that they seemed to get very active um, during this pruning process, especially in the face of environmental insults or trauma, but nobody was nailing down the mechanisms I started a file that at the time I would bug my agent. I bugged my agent for like three years about an idea before she finally succumbs <laughs> to my crazy ideas. It takes a long time. And, and it's a good process because if I can't prove it to her, I can't prove it to anybody. If I can't make her go, oh, okay, put down the phone, you know, sit down to listen to me versus you know, shuffling papers on her desk or walking her dog. If I don't have her attention, I can't get anybody. So it's a great proving ground. We had a file and I would send her all kinds of studies and I called the file brain flame. And I began to follow everybody who was at the forefront of this. And I also have to bring in kudos to a really close friend of mine who's a neuroscientist, Peg McCarthy, who's chair and dean at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in neuroscience and pharmacology. And we have dinner and I'd asked her a little bit about microglia and she was like, microglia, oh my God, this is where the field is going. Oh my God, this is, and it's all very, a lot of life overlaps here. My son had worked for her in her lab for a couple of summers and, you know, we're fam, our families are friends. And he was coming home and going, I counted microglia in the mouse brains. And when this happens, you know, whoa. And so then I reached out to Beth, who is arguably the scientific mother and grandmother now of our understanding of the role of microglia in pruning synaptic health in the face of environmental insults through, for the real nerds in the room, the complement pathway. So if you know what the complement pathway is in the body, then you'll know what I'm talking about. And if not, and I don't explain it to you, just trust me, it exists. So I went to Beth and Beth was kind of in the midst of wrapping up and digging into her groundbreaking research with her all-female team, including her postdoc, Dory Schaefer, who's now at UMass looking at these little cells over and over and over until they could finally capture the actual moment when microglia morph from being these good doctors of the brain, the angels of the brain, as the book title implies, and running around and giving neurons, which are the flashy darlings of the scientific world, you know, little sips of growth factor or, you know, patting them on the knee and saying, how are you doing here? And there are these elegant dancers in the brain, microglia. They're all over the brain. They make up all, uh, as high as 10% of your brain cells. They're the smallest little cell in the brain, overlooked for a deck for a hundred years. And here Beth and Dory are watching them. And all of a sudden they see it where this elegant dancer cell, this caregiver cell morphs into this big fat hairy Pac-Man like cell and begins to gobble up and eat synaptic connections in the brain. And they've dyed the little synapses red and they can see these little red dots in the belly of the microglial cells. 
And that was a game changer for all of science, because think about it from the era of Descartes, you know, mind-body dualism, the brain and body are church and state, never the twain shall touch, um, to early anatomists who told us because of the brain blood barrier and the hard cap of the skull over the brain, that the brain could not possibly be an immune organ. It must be separated from the body's immune system because of this dense constellation of cells, the blood-brain barrier at the base of the brain, and because the brain has a skull, right? So if it was going to be an inflammatory organ, it would have to be able to become inflamed and get red hot, painful, and swollen. So we had this misunderstanding about the brain, and that meant that we couldn't understand why is it that individuals who show changes on brain scans and demonstrate symptoms of mood disorders, depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, that line up with those brain scans, were actually undergoing those changes. And why, for that matter, they also so often showed higher levels of biomarkers for inflammatory factors, including uh, C-reactive protein, IL-6, and other factors that we associate with inflammation in the body. So I did a lot there, but this is this really understanding what this cell did in the brain tied together a mystery in modern medicine, which is how could it be that patients who've experienced chronic stress or trauma or environmental insults would not only have higher levels of physical inflammation, but they would also be more likely to develop shifts in mood, cognition, behavior, and that these would also line up with changes in neurocircuitry in the brain. How is that possible if the brain is not an immune organ, if the brain is immune privileged? And microglia are the tiny little cell that link our brain and our physical health. So Pete, there's the gut health. I told you Donna would talk about it. Beth has a brewery in her lab, right? And, and uh-huh. what is the beer? What do they call it? Microglial. <laughs> yeah, they, they haven't that. won any awards for their beer yet, but they've won a ton for their research. <laughs> so uh, she's since gone on to be a MacArthur Fellow, a Howard Hughes Grant Awardee. And I hope one day she'll get a Nobel Prize because it was really ballsy at the time for her. She was her first lab. I hope if Beth, if you're listening, it's okay to tell all this. Um, but it was her first uh, opportunity to have her own lab. And, and she would step in right now and say, because she's this kind of person, I really have to credit the people who came before me, the people who mentored me and, and took my interest in this cell seriously and gave me the faith in myself to go forward and, and decide when I got the opportunity to start my own lab at Harvard as a young woman, you know, in the midst of having and raising her own family to go and devote it to this quest. It was a big deal to do that at that time and ask this question, but it it changed our understanding of many things. For the moms and dads listening out there, Donna, because, you know, we have have clinicians, we have techs, they're going to go out and get your book. Why are they going to care to read it in reference to their children? Well, it's such a great question. And I too am a mother and I am the mom of two two children, um, one of whom a son and a daughter, 
And my daughter makes no bones about her neuropsychiatric issues, no bones about it whatsoever. So I can say that um, it's her story to tell, not mine. As any mother knows, let your children tell their own story. However, I hear you and I see you and I know how scary it is to worry over your child and to not know if something is okay and let it pass because it's just a shift in their growth and exploration and in their becoming or if it's something that you should begin to take action. You know, none of us want to do too much, right? Don't want to get in and, and, and try to fix to the extent that you do more harm than good. It's really difficult to make that, make that discernment. But I think as I wrote the book and I followed different patients, as you guys know, the book coming out in September is going to be about girls specifically, But as I wrote The Angel and the Assassin, I was really deeply moved by the three women I followed. Women tend to suffer more from depression and mood disorders. They tend to be laughed off more by the medical community. They tend to have higher ACE scores. They have higher rates of depression and anxiety in response to inflammation And there are all kinds of reasons for this. And I delve into that in the next book, but I wanted to tell women's stories. And often these stories started in their childhood, right? Because that's when these um, traumas or inflammatory processes or responses to chronic stress and adversity became set in place in the first place. And I was really just would sit in rooms with them as they were exploring options, including treatments like neurofeedback and TMS and have tears in my eyes because as a parent at that time, going through what I was going through with my daughter and wanting to help and not harm, it offered for me a new framework outside of, and I don't think my daughter, whose name is Claire, would mind my saying this, the adolescent psychiatrist who's trying 18 different drug combinations and none of them are really working. And you seem to be maybe in some way they're life-saving in a crisis, but you also see people lose parts of themselves, right? In, in this medication process, I'm pro medication. You guys might not be, I've seen it save lives. I've interviewed thousands and thousands of patients And I can see how for many patients, it gives them the opportunity to have the courage and the bandwidth to try things for healing that they might not otherwise have done. In the same way, I've seen that with meditation and many other things that allow this next step in the process of healing. So I'm pro-medication. I want to be clear within reason, within reason. But I think it doesn't work for everybody. I think it comes with a billion side effects. And if we don't break open the world into a new way of seeing the brain and seeing it in this new framework early in life, really early in life, and understand that the brain is this intricate, sensitive immune organ dancing with its environment 24-7. And the main job of the brain from about you know early before birth is, am I safe or not safe, right? And that answer to that question is going to shift the development of the brain 
from the moment that life begins, the brain is storing and taking information in to decide what kind of world it's coming into and growing up into. So these cues and messages of safety versus unsafety are paramount to how the brain responds and how the immune system responds over time. And I think that knowledge coupled with the fact that there are an array of different approaches that we can bring in to help children is really powerful. So I think, again, we get really confused if we don't understand the source of a problem or why things are going awry. And in that confusion, we can get very distracted or try lots of things or become fixers. And information for me, and I grew up in a newspaper family and a family of scientists. So for me, information is very grounding. It allows me to be centered, less afraid, less confused, and take more right-minded action. Dr. Laura, the psychologists, the people that do the talk therapy and, and whatnot, they're, they're not required to know what the anatomy of the brain is. Is that correct? Or how do, how do I well, get that? It's a, it's a you know, couple of classes you take, but you know, if clinicians are out there doing the, uh, the dirty work. I mean, they're out there day to day, face to face and listening to the to the things that people are struggling with and, and providing, you know, more talk therapy, you know, everyone has their, their role, you know, different disciplines, you know, it takes the village kind of thing. So the average psychologist, and that's just painting with a broad brush, probably doesn't need to know a lot of biology that they don't need to know what glial cells are. They need to know the outcome and how they um, affect people along the different developmental stages, especially late stage. When you talk about degenerative diseases, you know, so certainly psychologists or other uh, clinicians who are involved in working with, well, all people across the developmental um, line, but especially, you know, uh, in late stages, you know, we're talking about Alzheimer's and frontal temporal dementia and, you know, how crippling these things can be. And, and you know, hopefully uh, people who are involved in prevention can, you know, help share this kind of information. So, yeah, it, you know, it's not the psychologist's fault that they don't, they don't have tons of background in, in the um, all the all the biology, but there, there's some who you know uh, individual interests and individual needs to to explore different things. So I like what Donna's doing. I mean, I, I don't have tons of questions because I'm still trying to wrap my own head around all of this. Um, but just a comment that you know we can appreciate your work and appreciate how you bring um, you know in, in your book you know put uh, characters around the different cell cell bodies. You know, kind of make it more accessible. And I, I think that's what we're trying to do with our neuro noodle is make it more accessible to the people. You know, we can talk as scientists and nerds and get all into the geography of the brain and, you know, get it down into the minutiae and, and, and kind of get excited about glial cells and, and, and inflammation and, you know, these, these kind of uh, things. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a bridge we need to get to the average Joe, to the average mom, to, you know, make these things more accessible. Um, we were talking, what, last week about um, how, you know, some patients get upset when they learn that there's other options, you know, that they get upset that, oh, there's such a thing as neurofeedback for migraines. Wow. You know, how come no one told me this? How come my doctor didn't tell me this? And, uh, you know, part of the answer is they didn't know either. You know, it's not, not that that's they're right. doing, yeah, they didn't that's know anything right. malicious. Yeah, that's not a malicious thing as much as, you know, the information is not out there. And so that's, 
you know, I'm relatively new, you know, compared to you guys for sure, relatively new in this field. And I keep scratching my head, like, why don't more people know about this? I think part of it is what I, I think I just said is, you know, we need to make it more accessible. We need to explain things. And I, I think you do a good job in your book trying to make it a little bit more down to earth for, for an average reader, you know, who's not a scientist, you know, um, to, to have access to the information. So I wanted to just say that, you know, one thing that we try to do as reporters is go down in the valley, like to the little cell and get very, you know, fine grained and nuanced. But we try to stand up on the on the mountaintop, too. Right. And just like look at real people's lives, what's happening just from the broad brush. And in doing that, you know, there are a lot of really simple ways to break this down. For instance, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think of the work of George Slavich out at UCLA, head of the stress lab. And George just came out with a mind-blowing study that's just so simple, doesn't get into any of the cellular details. People who go through a course of talk therapy show lower levels of inflammation. They're measured pre and post. It's just that simple. So if inflammation we can all accept isn't good for the body, And if we make that leap that it's not good for the brain, because the brain and body are talking to each other all the time, we now get it. We have immune cells in the brain. It's that simple. We have immune cells in the brain. They're cousins to the immune cells in your body. All immune cells are responding to the world around you, all kinds of environmental input from infections, you know, whether it's as we obviously can see with COVID or chronic stressors got immune cells in your body and your brain, we can measure immune activation in general terms, pre-talk therapy and post-talk therapy, we can see pretty profound differences in the body's inflammatory response. That's really simple. It's really elegant. It's really beautiful. You don't have to know the details, but it's hope. That's hope. We were on a demonstration just yesterday, and I I think what made sense to me was trying to explain this. If you get into uh, talking about how to train or treat the symptoms that you have, you can go into the weeds. And it's not about, you know, taking a pill. It's not about neurofeedback. It's not about yoga. As long as you feel feel better, right? But to, to me, it's just like you said with talk therapy, it's to take an EEG before and after, and does the talk, whatever you're doing to try to get better, is it working? Get some objective data that shows that you're getting better. And I think there's value in, in just taking that picture. Or no objective data at all, and just become the general contractor of your own health and your own experience. Test drive, lots of things. I've interviewed thousands of patients. I can tell you one thing for sure. One thing alone never does it. It's never one modality or one try or one effort. It's always people trying a lot of things, listening and having that ability within to listen and know what seems to make them feel even this tiny bit better to say, 5% being motivated enough by that experience to keep practicing whatever it might be and putting it together. People might try 12 things and they might find two or three together are the answer. It almost always involves gut health, by the way, I've almost never seen anybody fully heal 
without also addressing diet and nutrition. I can't think of anyone whose story comes to mind where they haven't also approached that factor of their health. Understanding your own narrative is hugely important, which is why we do our narrative program. Because if you can't get people to understand the narrative of their story, then they often don't feel enough sense of care for themselves to get in and try the very things that can be transformative for their health. So there's so many layers here. We could go on and on about all the layers, but this isn't a simple process, but it can be made simple by understanding the connections in your own story, your own reactions to the world, coming to yourself with a sense of self-compassion and desire to try different things that are safe and available and which I wish were more affordable. And then know what resonates for you and put together a package for yourself in your daily life, stack your day with micro changes because you're the driver. We did a talk yesterday. We took our show on the road, so to speak, to a psychiatrist who was really interested in hearing about neurofeedback. So I thought that was a cool thing of him. He, he does. Describe, yeah, exactly. He does describe himself as being holistic. And he, well, we had a shared patient who had some excellent results. Short story long, uh, she became, uh, she was disabled, a uh, young, young woman, early 30s or something. And uh, was disabled, couldn't work, XYZ issues. We had probably 20 sessions of neurofeedback and she's ready to get back to work. So um, pretty happy about the results. And so he had to call. He called, it, he called me and said, what, you know, what are you guys doing? And uh, I said, well, we can come over and show you. And so we came over and uh, Pete had a great idea to have, have him do a brain scan before our talk. So he came over, did a brain scan, and then uh, we had our talk and he had some PA students or something. And uh, we're discussing all these things. And I had a picture of his scan. I have a neuro uh, navigator, which does a 3D kind of rotate the brain image. So it's, you know, pretty cool graphics. And I said, you know, are you, are you okay with me talking about your results? He said, oh, yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah, go ahead. You know, but you got your staff here. Is that okay? He said, oh, yeah, that's fine. So anyway, um, went to talking. And then after my talk, I didn't say much about his scan, except it could tell he was really tired. Uh, it was at 7.30 at night, he was getting the scan and I didn't want him driving because it was, it, it, he was such high delta theta in the front. But anyway, went through the whole whole thing. And then the last, you know, the first thing uh, he asked was, where are the controlled studies for this? I said, well, you know, there's aren't for ADHD, we we're talking about the, at the moment. And I mentioned the orange studies and kind of how this is a different animal and, and you know, funding and et cetera, makes it problematic for research, et cetera. And then I said, you know, it's time to go, but have you ever had a brain injury? He said, no, no I've never had a brain injury. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, and then he said, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Uh, I played sports. I forgot the sport. He knows it. But anyway, I cricket. said, cricket, that's what it was, right? And as I was pointing to the par part of his brain that he had a brain injury, he was doing the same thing. Like wow. We wow. And exactly. And I said, you know, drop the mic. You know, there's double blind studies and, and we do have studies. So it's not, you know, kind of saying there's no studies on our end, but, but to say, Hey, you know what, you've got a personal experience. I just, I don't know you from Adam, uh, you're a wonderful gentleman, but I just pointed to where you got hit in the head from cricket when you were whatever years old and, you know, how many studies do you need for that? So, so your point, Donna, it, it, you know, and again, there's, there is you know, the science behind this. 
but you know, you want to look at your individual experience. And if that isn't powerful, A, your patient got well, and B, I told you you had a you know head injury that you forgot about, you know, there, there's there's something to this. You know, it's it's more than you know the the triple blind studies or whatever. I wholeheartedly agree. And um, look, you know, my husband and I have both been through a good healthy dose of neurofeedback. And I'm going again, because two years later, I, you know, I'm, if there is something out there that can help reorient my responses to the world and to myself in a way that it enhances my meditation, my yoga, my acupuncture, my nature walks, my writing to heal processes, and my own neural re-narrating program. You know, I use all of it. I stack it up, people. That's what I do. I have five autoimmune diseases. I've had two head injuries. Um, I have a daughter with a disability. I've raised two kids, written seven books, 300 magazine articles. My brain is a little tired. It's just a little tired. I've, I've spent a year in the hospital cumulatively managing autoimmune disease, grew up having a lot of trauma. If there's just something more that I can do that's safe, has no ill side effects, I trust the practitioner because you and I both know that's a really big thing. I'm going to do it if it helps my responses to the world to be in a place where I can have that metacognition to see myself, my behavior, the behavior of others, interpret and perceive it in a way that allows me to feel equanimity and grace, regardless of the degree of adversity that I face. And we all face life. Isn't going to be a matter of it happens. We feel better. Life keeps happening. Tough things keep happening, at least in my family, maybe not in every family, but tough things don't stop coming. And to have that ability to be in motion through life's most catastrophic moments without wanting to give up, run away, hate myself, or many other unpleasant options, I think that's a win. I think that's a win. And I think it should be available to everyone. It doesn't mean that every person who sits in that chair is going to say that was it for me. That's okay. We have other options that we try to offer freely and widely. I think neurofeedback should be one of them. Just me talking. I echo nearly everything everybody said. And and the idea of trying things or having the opportunity to try things. And if you're lucky enough, finding something that, that works along with the information that you're sharing with us today, Donna, and, and, you know, maybe at another level up the what, what the book represents, which is, Hey, we can ascertain more about function now than we ever could through neuroscience and all of these cool technologies we have. And it provides information for us to understand a little more about what's contributing to what we do and how we feel. So with that idea, and then back to the question that Pete asked Laura about, you know, psychologists and clinicians getting some brain training, not neurofeedback brain training, but 
you know, some courses in, in brain work, all for this idea. And then I'm going to ask you a question, Don, if you, if you could. Um, it sure seems like there's a lot of things that impact what we do. And I know as a, a white guy in America, that means certain things, right? There's this kind of waspy undercurrent of how you're supposed to be in your life. And it's a matter of just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and those kinds of ideals. I want to ask you, Donna, because I don't think that that's all there is to it. I don't think you just buckle up and, and power through depression or fill in the blank on whatever it is. Ask somebody to power through Alzheimer's and see how they do. Yep. There's, there's mo- mo- so many contributions and it's kind of with this idea of, hey, with all this new technology we have, we get to see things that are fascinating. But with all this technology, that means our entire worlds have changed too. And so those things impact us. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you've discussed thoroughly in the book and that there's so much affecting just how we've been over the last hundred years and it's not surprising our evolution hasn't been able to keep up, right? So, yeah, so two parts to that question. One is the grit and resiliency part. Yeah, sure. I talk a lot about this when I'm lecturing at universities. And what I like to say about grit and resiliency are a couple of things. One is, you know, we all grew up, or at least I did, maybe you did. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But in fact, we know that far more often the opposite is true. You know, the more adversity and chronic unpredictable stress that we face growing up, um, especially across development, the more likely it is that we will undergo shifts in the genes that oversee the stress response. And those genes also oversee the production of inflammation in the body and brain. So really what doesn't make you stronger actually uh, what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's the opposite that is true, unless we have a real understanding of what we can do to intervene in that process. Because trauma and adversity are real; they're not really going away. They exist in our in our lives. We can't protect kids from everything. We can't wrap them up in saran wrap or Teflon coat them from the world. If there aren't adversities and trauma in home life, they exist in the world around us all the time, especially the world we're living in right now. It's rethinking that, as you said, that waspy undercurrent, which I also grew up with, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get on, put on your tall pants and get out there and and go do it. Very little room for emotion or understanding. Just go and get it done. And don't forget to pull up the people next to you. Pull them up too. But you're basically, it's grit, it's resiliency, It's don't complain, don't whine, get on. And in that, especially if you combine that with a story of adversity or trauma, we then take kids later and we look at their outcomes and we go, she was resilient. He was resilient. She had grit. He had grit. And it drives me freaking crazy because you know what? Surviving... A childhood with whatever amount of adversity or trauma without safe, stable, nurturing adults or adults to fall back on or feeling seen and known and as if you belong and are safe in your own home, that's already grit. That's already resiliency. I actually don't care what your outcome is. If I'm talking to you and interviewing you 
in order to call you resilient. Surviving the world we're in right now, surviving difficult childhood, surviving adverse childhood experiences, those kids are already resilient. So what we really wanna do is turn the conversation in my mind to flourishing. Like let's not label people as having grit or resiliency according to their outcome. Some may be luckier than others. Some may have had different interventions available for adults who stepped in and helped them. So anyway, that's my rant on grit and resiliency. And I'll go to the second half of your question, which is about, um, I think what you're asking about is really our evolution as humans across the evolutionary time and wrapping together why it would be that our brain and body are so responsive in a very nuanced way to cues and messages of danger and safety. So why would it be that kids who grow up with adversity or trauma are going to have all these changes that we've been talking about? Like we tied it down on the cellular level, yay. But what is it that makes us as organisms, human organisms, so sensitive to the world around us that being hit by environmental insults that include emotional adversity or emotional stressors would have this effect on our body and brain and immune system. What the heck is going on there, right? So to answer that, we have to step back way, 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 way back in time to hunter-gatherers even before that, and to a time in evolutionary history where um, our evolutionary history where let's say you are going out to get dinner for your family and you've gone out and you got a couple of rabbits and yay you and you're walking home and a bear jumps in the path or a wolf or whatever your most scary thought animal is in your head right now. And you know that he is this creature, this predatory animal is going to go for not just your rabbit, but probably you. That's a stress. We all know about fight, flight, freeze now, you know, ad nauseum, we get it. Fight, flight, freeze sends the body into this inflammatory response to fight or flee. But that's not all that's going on. Your brain evolved across evolutionary time to also go, well, it's really likely I'm going to get wounded here. I'm going to have a physical wound in this moment of fear. Fear is equated to a physical wound across all of our history as humans. And therefore, my immune system better hit overdrive. I better start pumping out those cytokines and pumping out those inflammatory chemicals because there's going to be a wound and I'm going to need my immune system to kick in and help fight off whatever pathogens I'm now going to be exposed to. But wait, there's more. It's not just the wolf in your path. Across evolutionary time, back in hunter-gatherers, Your safety wasn't just being able to walk down the road with dinner for your family or through the woods. It was also that you be included and kept safe by your tribe, right? Your tribe was your safety. And this this meant that if you were to start picking up on being dissed by members of your tribe, put down, emotionally or socially made fun of, seen as less than, you are going to, by increments, begin to be moved to the outside of the tribe. You 
your offspring would be moved further away from the good scores of going out and getting the nuts and seeds from the fire where the good meat was from the protection of the tribe so that if there were marauding and marauding tribes or predatory animals at the outskirts of the tribe you would be closer to the outside this had a lot of influences on reproduction it meant not only were you as a human organism less safe so were your offspring it would be very difficult for your genes to reproduce over time if you were having and trying to nurse babies and keep them safe at the outskirts of the tribe. And in the final analysis, you might even be fully ostracized, put off on your own, out there in the elements, amidst predators, amidst warring tribes. Guess what your body is thinking about at the first hint? of emotional stress and exclusion, being dismissed, made fun of. You might think now of the time our kids spend on social media, being liked and disliked. Your immune system evolved across millennia to respond to emotional stressors as if they were toxins for very good reason, because boom, if you're outside your tribe, I always think of Fred Flintstone when I say this. <laughs> well, my God, putting him out of the house. Um, you're out there. Guess what? The elements aren't pretty. There's no shelter. There's no food. There's the risk of starvation, wounding. Your children are at risk. And your immune system is kind of a mismatch for the modern world. Back then, yay, your immune system is going, well, let's get really, you know, revved up here for the possibility of pathogens. I might eat food that's not safe. I might scratch myself and get an infection. I might have, you know, a wild dog bite me. I don't know. Did they have wild dogs back then? Probably not. Um, you know, whatever that might be. And yet now we're going through our world. Think about COVID. We're in this time of isolation. Um, people are turning on each other politically, emotionally, no, you know, we're not coming together as a people. There is all this sense of shame and blame everywhere you turn. And we're isolated from that nurturance of that larger tribe and isolated from that sense of safety. And so it makes sense that during COVID and isolation, we're seeing this, you know, as I know you all see as practitioners and experts, a lot more depression and anxiety and a sense of unsafety. So long-winded, winding, the long and winding road. Hopefully I've delivered you home. <laughs> I loved it. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for having me. And all It's right. been very nice to meet you more face-to-face -face than just on the phone. And, Lovely, um, Jay. And thank you again for helping me in my, in my writing process and being so generous with your time. Got it. <laughs> Yeah, Donna Jackson Nakazawa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate having you, and I hope listeners will stay in touch. You can go to my website and see more about my programs and books and my... And that, um, and that website is Donna Jackson, here, D-O-N-N-A-J-A-C-K-S-O-N-N-A-K-A-Z-A-W-A.com. 
Donna yep. Jackson, your, your, your full name, yeah. .com. Okay. Yeah. Got and it. you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and all those other things. So um, look forward to staying in touch and thanks for having me guys. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. Again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Gut Health. This is a gut health show. Gluten-free everyone loves and interested brain hacker. The contact info for everybody will be in the podcast notes. Do you have an idea for a topic? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with a link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. Right, Jay? Absolutely. You get a lot of coverage for that little dollar. Oh, more than a 19-channel cap. We love our Patreon people. A cup of tea. A cup of tea. Cue the music. <laughs>